Hebrews 2, 9 through 18. Let's read the word together. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I, the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thanks, Achilles. Hey, did everybody get a handout, by the way? Um, did everybody get the handout when they walked in? It has a sermon outline on it. You know what? I don't have my Bible. Got it. All right. Everybody there? Hebrews 2? Hebrews has been phenomenal, hasn't it? God's word is so rich. So occasionally I do this odd thing. Uh, where in the wintertime, I pack up all my camping gear and uh, as many sleeping bags as I can fit and all my warm clothes, and I put it all in a sled, and I get my snowshoes, and I go with some friends, and uh, we, we go into the deep of winter, <laughs> as deep of winter as we can find, and, uh, and I camp. And, and my wife, because she's a sane human being, thinks I'm insane, Right? And, 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 and she goes, why would, you, why would you do that? Why would you leave the comfort and the warmth and the security of home and central air to go camp in the snow? Um, and the answer I give is because uh, there's great joy in it for me. And she doesn't understand that. Um, and that's okay. I wouldn't expect her to. How much more odd is it, now think about this, how much more odd is it that God, who was in heaven, perfect heaven, Complete holiness, total comfort, completely over and sovereign over all things, that God himself, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would come into this uncomfortable, wearying, tiresome, painful human existence. Have you ever thought about that? Isn't that odd? How ungodlike of him. I mean, aren't gods sort of defined as those who don't choose to leave places of power 
Our God, interestingly, chooses to not just come into his creation, but to come into, listen, a fallen and broken and painful creation. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? What is the reason for that? And, 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 and hear me, Jesus didn't come into this world and hold creation at arm's length, did he? He came into this creation translating and enmeshing himself into the very fibers and the very essence of the full human experience. Jesus totally drank the whole cup of the human reality, even in its fallen and broken state. The question I want to think about this morning with you guys and that the author of Hebrews leads us to think about is this question. It's an age-old question, and it's this, why the God-man? It's a question that St. Anselm in, in uh, the 10th century AD, he wrote a book called Why the God-Man? And it's this question, why would God choose to take on human flesh? It's bizarre. It's strange. What purpose is there in that? And that's the title of this morning's sermon, Why the God-Man? That's what we're going to try to answer this morning. This topic has been a subject of much discussion within both Christianity and with outside of Christianity. And fortunately, um, about the third century, we sort of codified our view of what the Bible actually says about this because there was constant heresy coming up all the time, all throughout the first three centuries of Christianity. There was heresy coming up about the, the, the nature of Jesus' divinity. Some people came along and said, oh, Jesus isn't really God. He's man who became God. Or he's not really man. He's God pretending to be man. But I assure you that none of those things are true. See, Jesus was not God with skin on, nor was he man with God on. He was not a man who became a God, or he was not God ceasing to be God to become man. None of those things are true. What the Nicene Creed in, in the third, uh, 325 AD, what they decided on that the scripture says is simply this, that Jesus, listen, G you need to know this if you're a Christian. Okay, you, you need to know this. This is like fundamental. Okay, Jesus added his humanity into his divinity. He did not subtract in any way from his godness. He simply added his humanity to his divinity. And this is why theologians call it, if you want to sound really smart, remember this, called it the hypostatic union. Can you guys say that? Guys are so smart. Hypostatic union. Uh, it's from the Greek word hypostasis, which means nature. And it just means this, the dual nature of Christ. It means Jesus has two natures now. The pre-incarnate Christ did not have a human nature. And at his incarnation, when he was born, he added his humanity to his divinity and chose to live fully into his human nature. Let me try to give some clarity of what this means, okay? This means that Jesus did not parachute drop into the world fully grown. He could have, but he didn't. Jesus started life like you and I. In the terrible, painful reality of fallen human birth. Jesus did not masquerade as a man. He was a man. He did not skip the chains of pains of childbirth. He went through them. He didn't skip the bruises that toddlers get when they learn to walk. Jesus had to learn to walk. You ever think about that? Jesus had to learn toilet training. I'm not trying to be funny. He really did, okay? He had to learn how to do that. How ungodly of him, right? How ungodly, what kind of God chooses to come and become a child, right? He had to... Um, he chose not to avoid the fears and the silliness and the insecurities of being a child. 
He chose not to dodge the awkward years of being a teenager, the voice cracking, the tripping over your feet because you're not used to how big that they are. Jesus had to go through it. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't skip learning how to work hard. He didn't skip um, having to learn how to learn. He didn't skip having to learn how to read and how to write. Jesus had to learn how to cope with the constant aches and pains of the human body. He had to learn how to care for his own body hygienically. He had to learn how to care for and manage his own emotions and his own, um, his own feelings. He had to learn to pray. He had to learn to trust his father. He had to learn to resist temptation. He had to learn the scriptures. He had to learn who he was and had always eternally been. Have you ever thought about these things? You need to, because they are essential to the gospel, to the power of the gospel. We do not serve a fully and only divine Jesus. We serve a Jesus who chose to add humanity to his divinity. Why did he choose to do this? This is the question we need to engage with this morning. You might say, couldn't God have done it another way? Couldn't God have just sort of um, forgiven our sin? I mean, he's God, right? Our text will answer this. Couldn't he have just come down and not lived 33 years of a life? Our text will answer this. Couldn't Jesus have made atonement for sin in heaven without having to become a man? Our text will answer this. Why did Jesus have to be born? Why the God-man is the question we're running after. We tend to overemphasize either the divinity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, depending on what we feel is most appropriate. Unfortunately, when we overemphasize either the godness of Jesus or the humanness of Jesus, we lose something about our Savior and what makes him so approachable and what makes him so powerful and what makes the gospel good news. We need to have a robust understanding of Jesus' humanity so that we understand who this man is that saved us and how he did it. It's important to think about. I want you to look at our text just briefly here at verse 17. We're not going to start here, but I want to draw your attention to this verse because it's astounding. The author here in verse 17 of our text, chapter 2, he says this. He says, therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus had to be. Do you see that? Underline that. Had to be. He had to be made like us in every respect. Okay, Why? Why did he have to be made like us in every respect? Well, that's what we're going to answer this morning. This is what our text answers this morning, and this is what the outline I've given you is going to give us. It's going to, we're going to see six reasons why the God-man, six reasons why Jesus had to become fully man in order to make the gospel good news. And my, sort of my thesis today is that the gospel's not good news if Jesus isn't truly man. Okay? So let's dive in. We'll start in verse 10. Just to catch you guys up, the first chapter of Hebrews has been about the divinity of Jesus, the godness, if you will, of Jesus. The second chapter of Hebrews has been about the humanity of Jesus. The author is trying to introduce us to both of these realities simultaneously. And last week, Pastor Jeremy walked us through uh, the first part of, uh, or the, the second part, I should say, of chapter two, in which we learned that Jesus chose to make himself for a time lower than the angels so that he could bring us into a place where we are actually above angels. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. And here we pick up in verse 10. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that's a big verse. Like you could just read that and say, okay, move on. Let's not do that. Let's slow down. Let's look at some things here. The first thing I want you to see is that God is the sovereign agent behind all salvation. Okay. When he says in verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's talking about God, the father. Okay. God, the father, it was fitting that God, the father should in bringing many sons to glory, make the founder, that's Jesus, of their salvation perfect. One of the confusing things about Hebrews sometimes is, is you don't know who the he and the them and the, you don't know which ones they are. So what I find helpful sometimes in my Bible is I write who it's talking about in the margin in between the lines. So if you want to put for uh, on the top of um, he in verse 10, for it was fitting that he, you can put the father and it'll help you kind of understand who it's talking about. And then on top of founder, if your Bible says that, you can put Jesus so you understand who it's talking about. And then on top of sons of glory, you can put me, <laughs> okay? That's you. That's who it's talking about. So God makes salvation with the same meticulous care that he made creation. Isn't that incredible? The one, it says, the one who in all things existed by and all things exist for, that same one used that same meticulous and creative mind that he breathed the cosmos into creation. He used that same mind to, to breathe salvation into reality, did you know salvation started in God's mind? It was his idea. It was his idea. It was the inner Trinitarian. It was between the God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They, before time, before creation, they had a plan of redemption. Um, you don't need to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Um, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, listen, in all wisdom and insight. How much wisdom and insight does God have? All of it, every ounce. He's eternal. He is omniscient. All wisdom, think about that. All wisdom, all insight was, was deployed at the outset of God's saving work and plan. What was that plan? How was God's, what was God's idea of how to save? That's, that's the question, right? Well, it says here in our text in verse 10 that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to notice that word fitting. So there's, the way that Jesus chose to come was fitting. What does fitting mean? Fitting means it was the perfect plan. It wasn't just a plan. God's plan of salvation just wasn't just one he picked out of a hat. It wasn't just random. He didn't say, uh, let's, let's pick plan C. There is one plan of salvation. It started in the mind of God. It is the perfect plan of salvation. And listen, it's the only plan of salvation. There is only one plan. It is fitting. And what was this plan? Well, we're going to learn a few things about what was fitting in this verse. The, the fitting thing is that Jesus would take this appropriate posture of humility and that he would come and join in humanity. Charles Wesley in the, the, the famous you know, uh, Christmas song that we all sing and Hark the Her Herald Angels sing, he says this. He said, veiled in flesh. He's talking about Jesus. And by the way, the incarnation, that just means God coming, Jesus coming into the world. Um, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Incarnate, okay, God coming into the world. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What is Wesley picking up on here? He's picking up on this idea that it actually pleased Jesus to become 
part of this creation. It, it pleased Jesus to put on human flesh and to come and dwell among us. It was not something that he did not want to do, although the suffering was hard and there was times where he struggled with it. It was the perfect and fitting plan of God to send his son into the world. Why? First, we learn it was fitting so that he could bring many sons to what? Glory. Glory. What is salvation? Salvation is not being brought to a better life now. Salvation is not being brought to health, wealth, and prosperity. Salvation is being brought to what? Glory. Whose glory? God's glory. Any gospel that tells you the good news is that you're brought to anything other than God himself as the source of ultimate reality and joy is a false gospel. You are saved by God, for God, to God. He is why we follow Jesus. He is the goal. He is the treasure. He is the point. We didn't get saved so we could have a better life. We get saved so we get God, Amen. his glory, his riches. He is the point. We are saved as sons and daughters of glory, to glory, to God's glory. It was fitting that we be saved. We learned that it was fitting that Jesus was made perfect. Now, you got to stop and think about this. Don't, don't tune out on me. It says Jesus was made perfect. Do you see that? Now, you should be going, wait a minute. This is Jesus. He already was perfect, right? So, so what's happening here? How is Jesus being made perfect if he's Jesus? We need to ask this question, right? And why is it fitting that Jesus be made perfect? This is a good question to ask. Well, why don't you turn with me just a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 through 9. This is not the first and only time that this thing will come up in Hebrews We'll get here in a couple of months. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> hey, we're going fast. Oh, go on. Verse 7, Hebrews 5, 7. It says, in the days, it's talking about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, that is his human life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, zone in right here. Although he was a son, that is God's son, second person of the Trinity, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Isn't that crazy? Jesus had to learn obedience through what? Through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation. What is the author talking about here? It's not that Jesus was not perfect pre-incarnate. It's that Jesus needed to be made perfect in his humanity. And see, the problem is we assume imperfection implies sin. Jesus, when he was three and he fell down trying to walk, was that sin? Jesus, when he was five and he couldn't read yet, was that sin? No. Jesus in the garden where he's struggling to trust the Father, and he says, if there be any other way, was that sin? No. He's struggling. He's struggling. See, it's not sinful to grow. It's not sinful to learn. And this is, guys, this is why it's so important that we see the humanity of Christ. Jesus was without sin, yet he still had to grow. His faith still had to grow. His obedience still had to grow. It's not that he ever disobeyed the Father, but he had to learn, he had to grow up his humanity in totality. He had to be made perfect. This is important that we understand this. One commentator said that Jesus drank deeply of the human experience. He had to learn just like you have to learn. It's not like he just dropped into the world already figuring it all out. He had to learn. He had to learn what it looks like to be a human, what it looks like to, to understand God's will and follow God's will in his humanity. And he chose to, to not lean into his godness so that he could truly understand the human experience. Isn't that incredible? It was fitting also. It was fitting. Now, notice this. 
let suffering be the way that Jesus, is, um, that Jesus would be perfected. It was suffering that would be the thing that would make him perfect. Isn't that interesting? I want you to read this. I, I don't know who wrote it, um, but this quote by one writer says, those tiny hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made to take two great nails. Those little feet were made to climb a hill to be nailed to a cross. That sacred head was made to wear a crown of thorns, and that tender body wrapped in swaddling clothes was made to be pierced by a spear. For this Christ came to earth. His death was the furthest thing from an accident, and despite the malignant evil that crucified him, his death was the furthest thing from a tragedy. It was God's ultimate plan for his son and his ultimate gift for mankind. It was not an ounce of suffering that Christ endured that was not fitting for him. What does that matter to me, Sam? Well, why do you have to suffer? You ever think about that? How come God didn't just save you and take you right to heaven, right to glory, right to resurrection? Why do we have to suffer? Because our older brother did. And because there's purpose in it. And it's the means, the suffering is the means by which we are perfected. What is perfected? Our faith, our trust in God, just like Jesus. Jesus did it first. And I want you to see a very, very, very important word in this, in this verse, verse 10. It's the word founder. It goes like this. It was fitting that he for whom and by all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, that is Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder, who is referring to Jesus, it's an incredible word. Write it down. It's archagos. A-R-C-H-A-G-O-S. Archagos. It's an incredible Greek word because there's so many ways you can translate it and all of them have meaning and value in what it's trying to say here. Um, here in the ESV translation, it's translated author or founder, pardon me, but it can also be translated hero. Jesus is our hero. You know, that word in Greek literature was often used to refer to the heroes of the day, like Hercules and people like that. Jesus is our hero because he charged the field and took on what we could not as a human. He lived the perfect human life. I don't know if you guys like this movie, but in Gladiator, there's a movie, yeah, there's a movie called Gladiator, and all the girls are like, uh-huh. uh, maybe some girls like Gladiator. I don't know. That's fine. Sorry. Nothing, nothing personal. Um, there's a scene where Maximus, who's like a stud, right? And he's just like the best warrior. Um, he's like taken sl- slave and, and, and he has to go out and fight in the arena. And all the other guys just sit back and they don't even go out there because they don't even need to. Maximus goes out and takes out like 15 guys because he's just that much of a hero, right? This is the idea here. This is the language that the author of Hebrews is introducing from the Greek world that we would think of Jesus as our hero, as our champion, is another way you could translate it. You could also translate this word archagos as author. He's writing our, uh, our, our, our redemptive history. It could also be translated, this is my favorite one, the NASV gets it right, I think. Uh, the favorite one is pioneer. Jesus is our pioneer. What does pioneer make you think of? It makes you think of someone who's starting a new thing and bringing others into it. I, I read one commentator this week who, who gave the illustration of someone who was on a, a, a vessel that was sinking and chose to leave the vessel and pioneer with the rope to the shore and everyone followed him. This world is like a ship, man. It is headed in one direction. Jesus is the pioneer who is starting an entirely new trajectory for all those are in, who are in him. Isn't that cool? He is our pioneer. He's our captain. He's our hero. He's our author. It's incredibly good news. So on your handout, if you want to fill in number one here, the first reason Jesus needed to become a man was to pioneer salvation, bringing many sons to glory. To pioneer salvation, bringing many sons to glory. 
we find our second point in verse 11. It says, for he who sanctifies, note that word, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Okay, so the author here is trying to further illustrate that Jesus has commonality with us, that he has chosen to have solidarity with us, that he has chosen to, to take part in this human thing with us. And, he's, and he does this by saying, we're all part of the same source. Now that word source could be translated family. It's more helpful actually if it's translated family. And it could either be talking about Adam, which works with the context, meaning Jesus became part of the human world, or it could be talking about the Father. Either way, it doesn't matter. The point is the same, and that is, listen, Jesus is not embarrassed of you. Isn't that good news? I'm embarrassed of me. <laughs> you know how many times after church I go home and I just go, oh, why did I say that? Idiot, right? Jesus doesn't do that after church on Sunday. I hope. No, it, yeah, he doesn't. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed to call us brother. He's not because we're all one family, he, okay? Um, one uh, commentator said about this, he says, he might have been expected, Jesus, he might have been expected to shrink back from those of low origin or at best to move among them with the kindly superior professionalism of a surgeon who enters the, the, um, the ward of a hospital solely to heal, not to live there. But he claims men and his kin on this basis, his actions. So Jesus doesn't walk into the, the, the brokenness and the sin and the, and the gnarliness of this world uh, in his white robes. He don't touch me. I'm just here to surgically operate. No, he says, I'm going to move in. And I'm not ashamed to be part of this world. I'm not ashamed to be yoked with brother and sister with those who are broken in sin. Isn't that good news? So write this in your, your handout. Number two, the reason Jesus had to become a man was to set us apart in a new eternal family. To set us apart in a new eternal family. I told you to note that word sanctify in verse 11. Let me explain what that word means. Sanctify is actually um, the word, uh, let me see if I can get it right here. It's the word agiasmo. Let me find it. Uh, agiasmos, and it's just simply the verb form of the word holy, agias, agias. So when you say you're sanctified, you're just saying you're holied. You're being holied. Well, what does holy mean, Sam? Set apart. Sanctified means set apart. So when I go to the store and I go to get toothpaste, like you do, like every nine months or something, um, I go onto the aisle and I look at all of the different toothpaste options, right? And I go, mm, Colgate, okay, I'm going to sanctify that toothpaste, setting it apart into my cart. What have I said? I'm saying this is my toothpaste now and it will be used for my purposes, okay? <laughs> Praise God. That's the idea here, okay? Jesus has sanctified you. He has chosen you and set you apart for his purposes. That's the idea Jesus is our sanctifier. Well, what has he set us apart to? Well, we learned, didn't we? He set us apart to a new human family, his family, in which he is the older brother. And he's not ashamed to think of us as brother. I think we have time. Let's go really quick to John chapter 20, verse 17. Some of you heard me say this before, but this is cool. You gotta see this. John 20, verse 17. You know, Jesus intentionally never referred to the disciples before the cross ever as brothers. He just didn't do it. But there's this incredible moment here 
where Jesus first appears to Mary, and you know the moment, it's this very endearing moment where Mary's freaking out, somebody took the body of my Lord, Jesus is standing behind her, she thinks he's the gardener, where have you taken his body? And then he says, Mary, in a familiar tone, and she instantly knows it's her Lord, right? And she turns around and she just grabs onto him, like, if I let you go, you might leave again. (laughs) And Jesus is like, don't cling to me, right? Don't cling to me. So she says, Rabbi, And Jesus says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now listen to this. But go to who? My brothers. You know who one of those brothers was? Peter, who was ashamed of Christ in the courtyard when Jesus was being tried, remember? But Jesus isn't ashamed of Peter. He calls him brother. Go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to, listen, my father and and your father, to my God and your God. What changed? What happened when Jesus became a man and went to the cross and resurrected? I'll tell you what happened. He became a pioneer of a new family. He started a new family. He became the new Adam. And now we are, if we're Christians, we're in this new Adam. And we are now brothers and sisters of Christ. And he's not ashamed of us. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Irenaeus of Lyons in his book, The Scandal of the Incarnation, he says, he who was the son of God became the son of man that the man might become, or that man might become the sons of God. This is the good news of the gospel. But what does this brotherhood entail? Okay, now the author's gonna continue to give us more things that this means that we're Jesus' brother. Verse 12 and 13 tell us. Look at verse 12. He quotes Psalm 22 here. It says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Okay, the shorthand of that is he's quoting Psalm 22, which is a very messianic psalm, and he's doing so in order to show that Jesus is the one who reveals the identity and the personality of the Father. Remember we learned that in chapter one? Jesus is the full and final disclosure of God's nature. Okay, he's the language of God, the Logos. He has revealed to us his Father. So it means that he shares the Father's personality with us. It also means that he um, leads our praise. Do you see that? In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is leading our praise and receiving our praise as he is both God and our leader. And then verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Now, that's an astounding verse, and I don't have time to dig into it, but you can look at it later. Isaiah chapter 8 is what it's quoting. And it means that Jesus is saying, I'm like you because we both had to trust the Father. Isn't that crazy? We share this commonality, this solidarity that we both had to trust the Father. Verse 14, since therefore the children, okay, that's us, share in flesh and blood, that's the full human experience, He himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, here's the question we're trying to answer. Why did Jesus partake in the complete human experience? Why? Well, the answer is that, listen, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, so here we're finding another reason why Jesus is had to come as a man. And we need to ask some questions here, and I'm trying not to get lost in the weeds on this, okay? We need to ask some questions here because this is some big thinking. (laughs) Okay, first of all, what does it mean that Satan has the power over death? You might be thinking, I thought God was sovereign over when we die. I thought God was the one that chose the moment that when we take our last breath. He is. 
It's helpful if you understand here that the word power actually can be translated dominion. Dominion. It's not sovereignty, it's dominion. There's a difference. Sovereignty means you have absolute power. Dominion means you have power in that realm. Okay, so Satan has been given um, dominion over the realm that is affected by sin and death. You catch that? When this world fell into the curse, it became ruled by sin and death. Romans helps us understand all of this. That one man's sin, Adam, spread to all men. My friend Dennis Weber said, the other day, it was such a good quote. He said it yesterday in our lead thing. Sin is not a bullet, it's a bomb, right? That's so good. <laughs> it's not a bullet, it's a bomb. It didn't kill one person. It brought death to the whole world. That's what sin did. So when sin entered the world, Satan was given this temporary dominion over this fallen and broken world. What did Jesus do? Jesus came and started a new kingdom in the midst of this broken and fallen and dead one. And anyone who is within that kingdom is no longer under the power and the reign of Satan's dominion. Are you with me? Isn't that cool? So when you're in Christ, death has no sting. So what does Satan do to us? He just runs his mouth. That's all he can do. And by the way, Satan's a parasite. He lives off of death. So when death is completely eradicated at the resurrection, Satan's gone. He's done. As Christians, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear death. Isn't that good news? That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, go read it. That's homework. Satan, or uh, pardon me, Adam brought sin to this world. Jesus is the greater Adam. If Adam's sin brought death to the whole world, then Jesus' life brought more life than Adam's. It's the undoing of the curse. It's the thing C.S. Lewis was trying to get at there when, when, uh, when the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, when everything's snowy and all of a sudden it starts to melt. Death has been defeated from the inside out and the kingdom of God is growing. The kingdom of God is expanding. Wherever Jesus is made king, death has no power there. You say, but people still die, not believers. We wake up to ultimate reality. That's good news. This is why Christians should be really good at suffering. Because Jesus did it, and because we know how things end. So number three, if you want to write it down, the third reason Jesus had to become a man was to undermine the devil's dominion and put the fear of death to death. To undermine the devil's dominion and put the fear of death to death. We find our fifth reason here in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, this is a random comment. All of a sudden, he's talking about angels again. Well, remember, that's the point of chapter one and two is to prosecute the case that Jesus is superior to angels. And so here, he just kind of reminds us again that, hey, don't forget, Jesus is superior to angels. But, but who else is superior to angels? The offspring of Abraham. Well, what does that mean? Is that just referring to Jews? No, it is referring to Anyone who is saved by faith, how do I know that? Because Romans chapter four tells us that Abraham is the father of all who are saved by faith, Jew and Gentile. So Jesus, think about this, Jesus didn't become an angel to save the angels, did he? He became a human to save humans. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is not only committed to you and I as sons and daughters, but he's committed, listen, this is so cool, he's committed to humanity as a species, 
I mean, there's this idea, and you guys hear me rant about this all the time. There's this idea in Western Christianity that we get saved and we leave all this physical stuff and we go off to floatiness forever. That's wrong. You know why Jesus became a man? One of the reasons is to fuse forever creation, or, uh, the physical with the immaterial. He became a man and he took his humanity with him because humanity is going to be eternal. You're gonna, be, you're gonna live forever in a physical, resurrected human body, not floating. You're not gonna be in a puff of cloud. You're gonna get a better body because Jesus got a better body. He's our founder. He's our champion. What he did, we're gonna do. He resurrected, got a new body. We're gonna resurrect and get a new body. See, Jesus is committed to redeeming and resurrecting humanity and the world with it. Isn't that cool? That's pretty cool. The gospel's not about escaping materiality to eternal floating spirituality. It's about the true human, human, it's about the true human, Jesus, bringing us into the true humanity. I can't wait to be a true human. I've only ever lived as a fallen human. When I get my resurrected body and my regenerated soul, my born-again soul matches my resurrected body, I will truly be human. No more fallenness, no more sin, no more death. Heaven is the truest human experience. So if you want to write it down, number four, Jesus had to become a man to show God's commitment to believers and the human race. To show God's commitment to believers and the human race. I don't know why people don't talk about that more. It seems weird to me. Verse 17. Now we're kind of back where we started. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect, he had to be made like us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful, what? High priest. Well, what did the priest do? What was the priest's job? The priest went in and made mediation between God and man. Okay? One of the main jobs the priest did was to go in and to make sacrifices so that for a moment, at least in the Old Testament, there was cleanness so that man could be right before God for a time. And this is exactly what it says Jesus does here. It says he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, note the word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's a theology that is lost these days because we don't like talking about God being angry. It's not woke. It's not progressive. It's not nice, according to the world, okay? The word propitiation, what does it mean? It means satisfaction. It means, listen, it means that Jesus paid the sin debt. To whom? To the devil? No. To whom? To the Father. Jesus, this is, this is what, why the God-man, the book Why the God-man was answering. It's called Penal Substitutionary Atonement, if you care. Uh, so Jesus drank the cup of wrath that the Father had towards human evil. He propitiated, he satisfied God's wrath so that we could be reunited with God. We are saved by God. We are saved from God. Do you hear that? From God. From God. Jesus drank the cup of wrath. See, how else, Romans tells us, how else could God remain just, meaning he punishes sin, and also be the justifier? Well, he sends his son, second person of the Trinity, to justify us so that God's wrath is appeased and so that um, we are set free. This is good news, okay? It's really good news. Now, you should be asking the question, you should be asking, why did Jesus have to be a man like us to propitiate for us? Couldn't, you know, why did he have to be a man to die on the cross? Well, there's some really important answers. Tune in, I know if you're, if you're starting to lose me here. Okay, first of all, only a man can die for men. 
and women. See, evil and sin was a human problem. So Jesus became human in order to die for the human death. Humanity needed to die for human evil. Yet, only God could be a satisfactory sacrifice for the Father. The sin and the, or the blood of one human man would not be sufficient for all of God's elect. Only God's blood could be sufficient for the Father, yet only a man can die in the place of a man. And listen, only a man can die. How else would Jesus die if he did not become a man? You guys ever thought about this stuff? It's really important to think about. Why did Jesus have to become a human? Why did he have to live a perfect life? Because he needed to live the perfect 33-year life of faithfulness and give it to you as a gift. Jesus not only took your sin debt, he gave you his accredited righteousness. Isn't that good news? So when God the Father looks at you, he has no wrath, there is no condemnation. He sees Jesus' perfect life. Do you think that way? When you wake up in the morning and you know you blew it last night, and you think, should I pray this morning? You think, no, there's wrath towards me right now. I want you to preach the gospel to yourself. I want you to go, Jesus' perfect life is imputed, covering my sin. Furthermore, I've been sanctified. I've been set apart. I've been called out from this sin and evil. I've been set free. Jesus paid the sin debt so I don't have to live in this stuff. And I'm going to walk in freedom. That's how the gospel transforms us. There is no more indignation towards you. Jesus drank it all. That's what he's saying here. Jesus had to become a man in order to do this. So stop drinking God's wrath. As humans, I don't know what it is. We, just, we like to feel like God is angry. There's no more anger towards you if you're in Christ. A compassionate high priest. That's what we have in verse 18. We'll end here. For because he himself, oh, did I give you number five? To satisfy God's wrath towards sinners. To satisfy God's wrath towards sinners. And lastly, we find in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. This is so cool, guys. Don't miss this. This is just so cool. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. You know, Jesus was tempted. You think he was pretending in the wilderness when Satan brought his worst? You think he was pretending to be tempted? You think of the Garden of Gethsemane when, when the enemy was there trying to convince him not to go to the cross and he was sweating drops of blood? Do you think that was fake? No. Jesus was tempted. And he, unfortunately for him, he had to deal the full weight of temptation because he never gave in. He experienced a level of temptation you and I have never experienced because we have given in. So for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I need you to get this. Jesus took his humanity with him to heaven and he forever shares this eternal solidarity with you. And it is the feeling of being tempted. It is the struggle of the human experience. Jesus understands that fully. Do you know that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? He is your priest. Not some un unrelatable dude in a box wearing a black thing with a white. No, he's your, he's your eternal shepherd. He cares for you. And he relates with you. And when you pray to him, he doesn't look at you with cold-hearted uh, unrelatability. He looks at you with solidarity and empathy. He goes, yeah, I understand what that feels like. 
If there's anything that this text drives you to do, it should be to talk to Jesus more. He gets it. He understands. It says that he shared. He shared with us in this suffering. That's the word koinonia. It's where we get fellowship. We have forever this fellowship of suffering in common with Christ. That's why Christians can suffer so well. Anytime we suffer, we share in the koinonia of Christ's cup. We suffer with our brother. We suffer like our brother and our Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is king. He is God. He is sovereign over all. Just read Revelation 1, okay? He's not just human. He's fully God, fully man, both things, both at once. And listen, this is important. We need a God that is God enough to save, and we need a human that is human enough to relate with. And that is what we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's really good news, you guys. It's really good news. So why did Jesus come into the man? Those are the six reasons. Did I give you the sixth one? Gish. I'm terrible at this. Gish. I was going to say gosh, but I thought well, I'm in the pulpit. I can't say that. Gorsh. Verse six. To become our eternal high priest who can relate in solidarity. To become our eternal high priest who can relate. And that key word is solidarity. Solidarity. So Jesus came It says in Hebrews chapter 12, you can read it on your own, Jesus came because there was a superior joy on the other side of the suffering. That superior joy was you and I. It was the reality of the kingdom of God that is now growing through the church, through God's resurrection life being poured out by the spirit in this world and we're part of that. Isn't that good news? Aren't you thankful for Christ? Why don't you guys stand with me? Father, we... Thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you so much that you knew the perfect plan of salvation and you executed it perfectly. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not only our sovereign king, our creator, our maker, God the son, preexistent, but you are also truly man and that you will forever relate with us on that terms. I pray for this flock today, your flock, your sheep that you bought with your blood. You are the chief shepherd. I pray for them, Lord, and for myself as one of the sheep that we would come to you this week, Jesus. That we would come to you and know that you understand. And Spirit of God, would you move in our time of discussion now this morning? Lord, would we have just a great conversation with our brothers and sisters? I pray if there's any anxiety about that, that it would just go away. And Lord, that you would just move and work here as we minister to one another in circles. In Jesus' name, amen.